Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. to get good design is to talk to as many people as possible and to really think about involving people that don't look like you. Designing for safety is, is probably one of the more important pillars that we had to get over. You feel, you know, that your job is done, that, that it's been adopted by the local people. It's not, it's not your design, it's their design. Is to have an easy way of, of navigating around that people can use the landscape as much as possible. Design has to be more inherent in terms of relating to place than, than you know, superficial design elements. You're listening to Talking Landscape, a podcast which explores the big issues in placemaking, nature and the environment through conversations with leading landscape architects. I'm your host, Neelam Shima, and I have a particular interest in all areas of inclusive design and how we can work together to find solutions. In this episode, we are looking at the power of design in shaping spaces to be inclusive to all, which is a current theme explored in the latest edition of the journal Hospitable Landscape. Joining me today are Glenn McFarlane, Pierre Chin Dickey and Jill White. Jill is a writer and landscape architect and in this edition she focused on the significance of signs in creating inclusive urban spaces. More on that in just a bit. Glenn and Pierre, both from McFarlane and Associates, have recently designed a new piece of child-friendly public RAM on the site of the former Ilford Photographic Factory in Redbridge. Welcome all, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before we delve into these topics, I want the listeners to get to know you a bit better. And for all those people listening um, who are thinking of starting a career, in the profession or are changing careers what inspired you all to become a landscape architect uh well i was a, a latecomer to landscape architecture i didn't do my chartership till i was probably in my early 40s and i had a completely different career before so i was involved in social services work with in hackney and then I was um, in probation service. So I had a very different social justice sort of background. And then I completely changed my views when I became involved in doing horticulture as a part-time thing. And then I realised actually you could do a job in this kind of world 
And so I, I became qualified in horticulture and I taught horticulture at a, at a college. And then that uh, naturally progressed into understanding that there was a whole other design world out there. So then I qualified in garden design, became a garden designer. Uh, but then I felt really frustrated because my kind of social justice side wasn't being met. Uh, but I was really interested in landscape. Yeah. And funnily enough, I, I went to a talk by a landscape architect uh, member who was sort of promoting the, the work, really, uh, Merrick Denton Thomas. And he's, he's really inspired me to think, actually, there's a whole world out there where you can combine social justice and working in the public realm and for the public good, if you like, including horticulture and landscape design. So it was like a big light went on for me. And so I went and converted my degree to landscape architecture and then I became chartered. So it was a long old trip, <laughs> but I feel like I I've combined lots of different interests in this, in this field, but quite late on in life, really. <laughs> so you think being a journalist has served you well? Totally, because I came, I came to it with a whole different understanding of equality issues Absolutely. and uh, you know, the public realm from a user's perspective. I'm working with kids and young people mm. as well in the landscape. So yeah, all that kind of... Uh, really served me well as a landscape architect, definitely. Fantastic. Pierre? Uh, so originally I was born in Alaska, so it just has some of the most beautiful natural landscapes that you can imagine. Uh, wide open spaces, and so, you know, that's, you know, I was always drawn to landscape itself. Um, my parents worked at the, the museum in, in the town that I was in, and they had lots of education and outreach with a lot of the indigenous cultures that were there. And so, you know, this, this idea of indigenous people taking care of the landscape uh, and stewardship, um, I think, you know, was, was already inherent in, in me. And when I was looking at university and trying to figure out what to do. I had no idea what landscape architecture was, but um, I saw the name on the majors list and I selected it. You know, everything that I, you know, learned growing up, it just seemed to be a way to express myself, you know, through design and, and the landscape. And uh, so I practiced in California. Um, and then when my wife moved over to London, I came over with her, not that I had a choice, but, um, started practice uh, with, with Glenn and, you know, got my chartership here in the UK. Thank you. So um, landscape architecture was uh, recommended to me by some careers officer in some dusty old cupboard uh, somewhere at, at school. No idea what it was. Sounded intelligent. Um, thought that, uh, I mean, I, I love the outdoors environment and I love design and the subjects at school led me to, to it. My sister had started architecture a couple of years before uh, I was going to choose what I was going to do. Um, never had a plan B. Started on landscape. Loved it right from the start. But I think also um, a few other elements kind of conspired to um, uh, promote my, my love of the profession. I mean, I grew up in Glasgow in the, uh, let's say, 70s. Uh, and in that time, West Coast uh, cities where, where shipbuilding was dying uh, and there was huge unemployment, sectarian violence and the like. And really the public realm and the cities, especially West Coast cities at that time, with uh, lack of money, lack of jobs, lack of public finance, were really depressed places. And somehow the opportunity to make a difference to people's lives, uh, n not necessarily the, the rich people, but the public, public, you know, um, impoverished, uh, the needy, uh, really kind of resonated with me and so urban regenerations really become a mainstay of, of the practice and um, yeah I think uh, 
there is no plan B for me. It's been landscape architecture um, since the day one at university. So it's quite good in terms of um, hearing you speak in terms of, you know, you've talked about schools, you talked about communities, you talked about stewardship. And Jill, you've talked about in terms of, you know, being a generalist, kind of changing careers, which was vital. In terms of all that, inclusivity is kind of at the heart of everything we do. And Jill, you wrote about signs in the latest edition of Landscape. Can you tell us a little about the inspiration behind the piece? Yes, I know it seems strange to be inspired by signs, doesn't it? Road signs. I know I always baffle people when I used to say I uh, chose bollards for a living. And it kind of is because people don't realise that the landscape around them and the public realm is actually designed. So I think it's important to have a friendly environment, have an easy to understand and use environment. And part of that whole kind of hospitable landscape process is to have a easy way of, of navigating around that people can use the landscape as much as possible in an easy way and they're not prevented from doing that and I think one of the big issues for our profession really is to uh, understand that you're not designing necessarily for people like you um, and that you have to, to achieve good design you have to have a very broad understanding of what that is you have to consult as widely as possible so that you get as an inclusive um, an area as, as possible in, in terms of the, the accessibility of your schemes. So in signage is really a big part of that. But it's obviously very visual, or it can be very visual. It can ex be exclusively visual if you're not careful. And so I wanted to look at, really take a broad look at what is signage and take a much more broad brush look, so sort of 3D signs, things that are signs that are subliminal signs, if you like, like sound and smell and touch and those kinds of things. Things like tactile signs, if you like, on the floor and things that maybe certain communities are picking up and others aren't. Um, because they don't need to use them. And so some, they're invisible to many people, like, as I say, tactile surfaces, that kind of thing. So I think I wanted to try and make people think about uh, how you can signal things, if you like, in the landscape and how people receive that and how you can actually create a, um, an environment that's easy to use that a lot of different communities can find helpful. So, And even what the regulations are is not actually taught very well at university, in my opinion. So I think we do have to kind of really draw attention to you know, what the, what the issues are. Do you think, you know, you touched about um, universities. Do you yeah. think it needs to be kind of much young, much kind of earlier on in, in terms of the education? What, what's covered, you mean, in the syllabus? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've taught in universities and I think it's it's incredibly lacking. Mm. Um, I mean, it's not willful and, and there's a lot to cover in the curriculum. Yeah. Uh, but I think that people just aren't aware of the issues. I mean, people are not aware of the needs of disabled people mm -hmm. and they're not aware of the needs of children or minority groups in terms of how you can design well or, or not and then like, there are choices that you could make that make a huge difference to different groups of people just small things like putting a back or an arm on a chair for example or understanding that you need to use certain kinds of tactile surface messaging that actually is something that quite often comes later on yeah. when you're actually in practice and it depends on what environment you're working in how good the practice is at inclusive issues themselves how much they they help you un or they understand it themselves enough to train um so i think it does need to come much earlier i think it needs to be a really core bit of the curriculum and some universities are better at it than others 
But I think it is a really big gap at the moment. I really could, do. Could I just pick up on that yes. point about universities? So the point about um, inclusive design, um, de designing for all, often I think that busy practitioners don't get enough opportunity to uh, explain what's happening at the coalface to learning students because refreshing um, you know, having refreshing voices for students, I think, is really important because, and that's the way I think to get the latest trends and the latest issues mm. back into the early stages of the the process, rather than having to rely on lecturers that possibly have been in in education for years and years. Absolutely, Joe. My next question: mm. For a lot of people, the word sign conjures images of the road and traffic signs we see every day. They're a, they're a feature on almost every stretch of road, lane or pathway up and down the country, but this is only relatively a recent phenomenon since the 1950s. So how did we land with this iconic design? Yes, I know it's everywhere, isn't it? Everywhere you go in the world, mm. pretty much, is, is following the similar sort of uh, visual look. Uh, I mean, really, it was up to local authorities and up to individual parishes originally to come up with their own signage. And I, I suppose when the advent of cars came along in the 1880s, 1890s, suddenly there was a need to regulate the flow. Um, but everyone just had their own signs, and that was fine up until the point where you have a lot of vehicles moving around and a lot of people. And so by the 1950s, people were getting really fed up with not knowing what these signs meant. And having to interpret them locally so only local people really knew what they were and so in the sort of late 50s the government commissioned uh, Kinnear and Calvert to come up with some kind of more cohesive scheme that they could roll out uh, nationally and trialled all sorts of uh, fonts and they had um, aircraft pilots, ex-aircraft pilots sitting on towers in old airfields looking at different fonts to see how quickly you could read it and so that's how they came out with the idea of having a mix of lowercase and uppercase because it was easier to read quickly um, and so that evolved into also incorporating some of the things that Margaret Calvert had done at Gatwick Airport when Gatwick Airport was first built. She pioneered the yellow and black signage and so that's still very much appreciated by people with visual impairments. Um, it still recognises the good uh, practice thing for, for uh, signage. So they came up with that idea and the whole kind of idea of the sort of uh, the codified system of triangles for warnings and uh, circular signs for orders. And you, you see that everywhere. Even it's, it's quite a handy thing because you, you, you automatically know, which you don't realise really, but that a triangle is a warning thing. So like I was on a beach in Australia and there was a sign with a crocodile in it, you know, which said, you know, warning estuarine crocodiles. But you immediately know it's a warning or like falling fruit in a tropical garden, warning falling fruit. You know, it's just a big fruit picture and a big warning sign. So it's, it's been taken up internationally and it's the recognised standard now um, of design. And uh, if you go online, we've given some links in the journal, but you can see all the sort of font sizes you're supposed to use. Um, you can't just come up with your own... Yeah. Um, idea of what you think a good warning sign should be. We, ha we have got things that have to be consistent so that everybody can recognise it instantly without having to think about it. According to government health statistics, by the age of 60, around one in nine people will either be blind or have moderate to severe visual impairment, MSVI. By the age of 80, the ratio increases considerably. Around one in three people will either be blind or have MSVI. What signage caters to the needs of these people? 
Well, it's all the other signs other than the visual plate signs, I guess. So you're looking at tactile paving and all those sorts of things that are indicators and they're very well set out. But we know we have sounds like bleepers for uh, road crossings and we have planting, the, the sort of local environmental signatures that people come to recognise and navigate by. Um, I, my cousin is blind, uh, or my husband's cousin, and... Um, He's totally blind, and he has explained very clearly how he navigates, like by the sound of the density of hedges in a particular wow. area, and shop fronts. Um, you know, with, with the doors, he can work out where he is in the high street and things like that. So, it, all those things are picked up. But it's not just those those the things that we do to make things easy for one group can also make it advantageous to other groups as well. So, if you have other signs around that aren't just always written signs, they can be picked up by people who can't who are, have no literacy or have disabilities or uh, you know you're catering to a lot of groups and I know there is a sort of there's a bit of a problem or a crossover in terms of actually if you create a lot of features for a particular group for example like tactile paving I know is coming for some stick in some quarters because obviously if you're in a wheelchair and or if you're using sticks actually they can become a hazard and so you have to kind of use them judiciously but you have to use them in the right way you have to use the right form of tactile paving as well not just invent your own because you think it looks nice <laughs> when you cater for one group sometimes other groups will really benefit from that too yeah. so it's not just a, you know for that group only so how prevalent are these other types of signs they're becoming more and more i think people are actually starting to think about different sorts of approaches so we've had the talking lampposts uh, scheme which has been quite a fun scheme in a way but with a very serious intent where you can actually have an interactive relationship with a bollard or a lamppost or a sign um, and you can have a uh, a qr code on there which you can use on your smartphone and you can actually go up to an object and it can you can start to have an interactive conversation with it it's a text conversation and so some some uh, practices have, have used that or some cities have used that to actually conduct consultation exercises so it'll you go along and you'll you'll go on the qr code and it'll say what do you think about this square? What do you think would make it a lot better? Have you found it difficult to use something? And so they'll build up a picture of what users are doing. But of course, you know, the users that you're interacting then are people with smartphones. So that's precluding, you know, quite a lot of people, especially elderly people, perhaps. So um, there are schemes like the React scheme in Newcastle where they have a key fob system. So if you are if you have a visual impairment, they have speakers on the lampposts and they have various things that you can trigger using your key fob to get information about how to navigate the landscape, where the station is, uh, how you're going to move around, that kind of thing. Um, so there's a whole potential out there for doing that more. So I think we need to get away from just having a visual board that tells you everything, however beautiful it is. I think maybe we need to be thinking much more about how sound and um, interaction can, can really help in the future. One of the key features of road signs is consistency, mm. which you spoke about. Um, you've got you've got triangles for warnings, circles for giving orders, like you said, and squares for supplying information. Why do you think the consistency is so important? Consistency is important because it's life or death for some people. I mean, if you don't know where the edge of a road is, or you can't you can't reliably turn up in another part of it, of, of the country and know where the edge of the railway platform is, you can pretty soon find yourself on the sharp end of a massive problem. I mean, you know, as I say, this has been a, an issue with the shared space sort of movement because it's trying to 
making a, a, a slower traffic environment and an improved environment for buggies and wheelchairs, but at the same time then you're taking away all the visual clues for another group of people who need to have tap rails or uh, some kind of uh, textile, uh, tactile surface. So I think it is a, it's a, it's a constant juggling act, I think, landscape um, design. You, you, know, you can't exclude groups and you, and you can't cater solely for a particular group. You have to. So you do have to have some kind of consistency of approach because basically it's a health and safety issue. But then how does it, its effectiveness compare to things like warning services which are not as closely regulated? Uh, I think obviously you have to have a, the bare minimum that is regulated and I think you can't just say oh you know you can only have this sort of style and you can only have this sort of design because it's very stultifying um, from a design perspective and for the quality of the public realm but I think there is a minimum that we have to accept. I think there is a bit of a danger. I have heard some um, you know landscape architects really being quite negative for example about tactile paving because they don't like the look of it and and so there has been a bit of a sort of jazzing up we'll just do it this way and then you end up with all sorts of things like you know stainless steel studs put in but all different sizes and people don't understand that actually perhaps you need to realize that actually if the studs are offset or if they're in a square pattern it means different things but if you don't use that yourself and you don't you've never been with a person with a with a stick and you've understood how it actually works so it's again it's about consultation it's about understanding different groups needs doesn't mean you have to put in everything they they would perhaps have on their wish list but it means you the wider the consultation the better the result the better the design thank you um moving on to glenn and pierre um, on your article about ilford through the lens um, inclusivity and co-design engagement is important for any design um, now, inclusion was something you addressed when it came to a new project you worked on Redbridge recently. Firstly, can you tell us a bit about the brief and the history of the site that you were working on? The Ilford Western Gateway was very close to the site and it was the council's uh, new urban quarter. It started off uh, ahead of us, but then uh, the Sainsbury scheme that we were, we were involved in with uh, Telford uh, st started off and the council gave us a very clear, Redbridge Council gave us a very clear steel that this was, it needed to be a public realm and landscape led master plan for the new urban quarter. From a public realm perspective and thinking about connectivity, it pretty much was a block a big, dark block to uh, permeability in that part of Ilford and a really lovely opportunity for us to be brought in as public realm specialists. Um, you know, I think we've got a, a really strong identity now for uh, meaningful public realm design in new urban quarters and digging up uh, stories of the past, uh, the history of the past in order to try and retell those stories in a new public realm design, making it relevant for uh, the, the place of, of today. Um, so, I mean, there was some really interesting things about that brief, uh, apart from just being a public realm and landscape led uh, mast plan, but also with the UNICEF child friend, friendly borough, which I'm sure we we'll get onto in a moment. You talked a bit about the site's history, but how did you reference that? If you can give me a bit more information through the design. So we, that's part of our process where really. we dig hard, uh, especially if it's an urban estate, uh, to try and work out what you know, what, what's significant about this place in any era or in, in history. And uh, in this particular instance, we stumbled upon Alfred Harmon and the, the making of uh, photographic plates, which was 
the old Britannia works uh, and Ilford Limited. I'm sure most people listening will have heard of or worked with or used uh, Ilford Limited photographic paper. So it really put Ilford on the map with uh, world-class innovation for using silver in the production of large photographic plates. We then dug deeper and, and created strategies for the public realm and landscape that really celebrated that uh, wonderful world-class era that was Ilford Limited to retell the story, really, so that people of today, the the people uh, in, in Ilford, and it's a wonderfully, uh, Redbridge is an incredibly diverse uh, borough, so a lot of the people uh, either didn't live there originally or weren't or not from there would be able to understand that sense of place in the new urban quarter that we designed. I liked how you said that it tells a story. Which is quite, which is quite prominent in a community. Um, can you tell us a bit more information about Redbridge's council child-friendly action plan, and how does it tie in with UNICEF's child-friendly cities initiatives, and ultimately into the project you worked on? So Redbridge was the first UNICEF child-friendly borough. There are more now. Um, but this was introduced to us early on in the design process, and we saw it as a wonderful opportunity, not necessarily to design specifically for a group, because then you become exclusive to other groups, as Joe was saying, but um, you're, you're turning up the volume uh, on your design principles on that particular issue. You know, it is an incredibly difficult uh, age group of uh, y- young people to work with, sort of 14 to 16-year-old. I know from my own children that that's a re- you know, it's a really difficult time of life. Um, So to get those people to uh, come to the table and and have a conversation. But co-design, I think, is is a really, as a designer, it's it's a wonderful opportunity uh, when when you're co-designing. So co-design and the UNICEF, our child-friendly borough, that was a really great opportunity for us to dig deeper into a different metric, uh, really. And what do inclusive spaces look like for children and young people? I think working with uh, children you sometimes forget how they can perceive things. And I think as a a new parent, uh, I perceive things differently from how my child perceives things. And, you know, working through the consultation process, you you, kind of understand these these different perceptions in the different age groups. Um, So one of the, the biggest things that I think children can perceive themselves that we oftentimes forget is their own well-being and their own safety. They can feel vulnerable. Um, they don't need an adult to tell them that they're unsafe. I think they go through a space and they can understand, okay, this is dark, uh, this is dangerous, there's people here that I don't know, I don't feel safe here. So I think safety, designing for safety is, is probably one of the more important pillars that we had to get over at Chapel Place because it's opening it up. You're, you're creating passageways, which is great. You're creating activity. Um, but how do we make sure there's no dark corners? How do we make sure that children moving through there, if unaccompanied, would feel like they would want to move through this space naturally? Uh, we know for a fact that you know teenage girls use spaces differently after the age 10 or 11. So how do we create uh, unbiased play equipment, play areas uh, that girls boys, uh, non-binary people can uh, accept. And then, uh, I mean, just pick up on some of those points that uh, Pierre was unpacking there. 
put play on the way um, rather than playgrounds in designated spaces. We we tried to design uh, the public realm, which is playable, uh, so that uh, throughout this whole urban quarter, there's the opportunity, especially for preschoolers, to be able to just it's just playful whether it's boulders or or something to swing on or or, or something to, to touch or to feel so you talked about kind of catering for a diverse um, range of groups what did the design process look like for you consultation bringing in consultation as early as possible i, I think when we found the heritage elements of the scheme it it made sense as okay we've, we've uncovered this this great story of ilford um, but how do we make that relevant to children, I think, was, was, was a big question. So we coupled with Up Projects, which is a um, public realm art consultancy, and they helped us with this consultancy process of uh, inviting teenagers to the, to the table. And uh, we brought in a, an artist, Andrew Brown, a local photographer, and he hosted workshops on the history of Ilford and also on photography, bringing in cameras and you know creating a, a photographic workshop with the children, and the, the results were were kind of what I wasn't expecting. That children were interested in this this heritage aspect. They were interested in photography. They wanted to know more about it. They were surprised that this was here, and I think they had a, a special own. They felt a special ownership, and this goes back to the stewardship of how can we cater and cultivate uh, now this relationship with with this storyline so i think it's it's quite it's actually quite important um that you've given kind of the younger generation a voice at the table which is which is crucial in your opinion you know you talked about co-design how did you feel that they added value to the design process i mean with public space design we we create a social brief for uh, spaces, significant spaces, and I think that our um, relationship with uh, Redbridge and the UNICEF ambassadors it really fed into developing that social brief for the spaces. You know what happens, who, who are the users at different times of day, and for a completely new urban quarter, um, it, it's a great opportunity, but it's also um, a great challenge because there's nothing there be before, so you're, you're creating everything that's new. But definitely, the the sense of ownership by the by the young Younger users is incredibly important for a successful public space. Um, I think, as a landscape architect, when you're you're looking at designing meaningful pu public realm, it's the adoption by the local people, by the by the use of the spaces. You know, you want to see your spaces absolutely rammed with young people because then you know it's successful. You, you feel you know that your job is done; that, that it's been adopted by the local people. It's not it's not your design; it's their design. The, the, the ownership of the scheme is so critically important to its future success isn't it in terms of how it's looked after and valued and especially with the younger people we found the same thing in in North Devon where children would really police it afterwards because they're so proud of it and their involvement that anyone who comes along and, and does anything harmful to it they're on it so I think it's a, it's a win all around. What kind of signage did you implement in your design and also how can the signs, whether it's visual, auditory or tactile, impact the feel of spaces like this and more generally? So in terms of signage, it was pretty minimal. We did establish gateways to the site, which we, we did actually put in some, some grand, you know, large metallic frames emulating 
you know, picture frames and frames your views, and you can see it from from quite a distance down the high street. Gives you some scale to the sites. You know, they were colored in, in bright tones, which were copied from Ilford Limited's uh, marketing colors of their different packaging material. We, we did rely a lot upon natural wayfinding through the scheme, which we we touched on. So we did different paving types for different areas of different character areas. Uh, planting schemes were slightly different in areas to give you a different sense of where you were at. Trees were positioned in different locations, you know, different groupings of trees to, to mark natural landmarks or entries to different areas of the scheme. So we, we relied a little bit more on natural wayfinding and legibility uh, and sight lines through the site to, to provide that instead of more directional uh, information. How do we ensure designs are inclusive to all irrespective of the main target users? Personally, I just think the only way to get good design is to talk to as many people as possible and to really think about involving people that don't look like you, not design it for you, because it's, it's people employ people who look like them. They, you know, it's just, it's just how we work as humans. You have to really, really think about who you're involving and then the good design will follow from that. And also researching the local community. Totally. And who the mm. key players are. Um, yeah. The, my secret weapon in consultation locally is to get hold of the mayor's Christmas card list because the mayor has the details of every single organisation and individual who matters in that area, no matter how small or how large. And I just found that is so useful. <laughs> so just uh, unpacking this point about in making sure that the designs are inclusive to all irrespective of the main target user. Um, to my mind, you shouldn't be designing spaces with the constraints foremost, but design spaces with a vision foremost, but it then needs to go through a series of filters in order to filter out things that don't work. To start with a strong vision, assuming that the designer is very educated in all these issues that we've been talking about, diversity, inclusion, and, and, and the like, accessibility, um, also working with enlightened architects, so it's not a building first approach, it's a site first approach, especially in an urban estate, levels, um, permeability, accessibility, um, green space, wind, light, all those, those elements. So a strong vision, uh, uh, um, an educated design team, but probably most important, the, the point that I want to make is the filters that it goes through. So community consultation, con consultation with specific user groups in, in order to test your design before you get to planning and then ultimately to, to site so that you've worked out all the Achilles heels, whatever they are, and then you've moderated your design um, accordingly, but hopefully you still have a strong vision after you've gone through all that, all those uh, uh, filters. Perfect. Now I've got a series of questions for you all. We've talked a lot about inclusivity with regards to signs, but what other factors contribute to the inclusivity of the public realm? I think for me, legibility is key, really. And I think that's what kind of was part of the motivating force of thinking about the signage and what that really means. Um, so I think that how, whatever form that takes, whether it's a physical thing or a sign or a flat thing or a tactile thing or a 3D thing, um, I think you have to be able to just get it quickly 
and get on your way. And it has to be almost um, something that you you don't even realise you're experiencing. It's just there and it works. You know, if you have to really think about how to make something work for you and get your key fobs out and you do all this stuff, I mean, that's actually, you've got to have a smartphone. You know, you've got to get rid of the barriers. You've got to make it seamless and easy. Absolutely. I pick up on that point, which is we're all about designing um, space that has identity and for as much as as much as possible be naturally navigable and legible so i wouldn't go as far as to say if you, if you need a sign then you failed as, as a designer in an, in an urban space but you know it's, it's definitely a, a balance because there's commercial factors that relate to development which pays for, pays for all of this stuff um but i think i wanted to make make a point about um you know google maps and people using their phones and you know are we moving away from you know the the, the actual just just get getting getting lost and i i put an alternative view forward which is actually if you've if you've been parachuted into a new new city that you haven't been to before actually you know going going on your phone and and um getting getting uh, a, a route probably would take you into places that you might not have gone uh, otherwise because the, your screen says so maybe the discovered uh, spaces um, you know, you, through the digital uh, way, way marking, actually d- does does allow you to be a little bit more confident uh, as an individual uh, in in an, an urban area. You both talked about, you know, Joe, you talked about signage, and Pierre and Glenn, you talked about co-designing. How much do you think it adds value to the identity um, for a local community? I think it must add a tremendous amount, really. I think if you can feel part of your environment and you you feel genuinely that you have been consulted and you framed it and if it didn't happen the way you wanted it you knew the reasons why and you understood it I, I, I think you must feel a stronger attachment to that area or a stronger sense of belonging or a stronger responsibility for it I can't I can't see how it can be anything other than positive really uh, I think this goes back to a previous discussion on relating to a place and I think as placemakers, we have to create something that has identity, has meaning, has worth for the people. It links it to the stewardship, the ownership. And if they're invested in that place, it will be very successful. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you use you know, high value materials or it's super sleek and modern. I, I, th- I think it design has to be more inherent in terms of relating to place than than you know superficial design elements i think it's going to be more important than ever in future because as you're getting these huge multiple housing developments and then the density is increasing and you're getting pattern put development and even how much you're fighting against that in the planning department trying to improve things like that to create local distinctiveness it is inevitable that you see the same kind of houses that aren't locally distinctive. You know, you know, you can go in quite different parts of the country now, and even the palliative materials won't necessarily be very local. So the thing that's making it local and the thing that gets the ownership is the landscape. It is the public realm. That's the thing that gives it the local identity in many cases. And I think there's there's an era, uh, a golden era here uh, for us as landscape architects um, in, in, in many ways, you know, biodiversity net gain or a greening factor but also ESG so environmental social uh, and, and governance the arrival of ESG and the need for developments and developers to be talking about the benefits uh, 
And to my mind, uh, one of the most rewarding parts of uh, the design process is the community consultation. And for years, community consultation was something that just had to be done, uh, leaflet drops as little as possible. And, and now community consultation uh, um, and the engagement of a communications consultant on some of the larger developments where you really have, and like we had at Ch Chapel Place, you really have deep, meaningful, worthy, uh, uh, repeated stages of, uh, and God forbid, actually, you know, the design being uh, amended, altered, improved for the the people that have have commented. Can I just put in a word for like inclusiveness in an incredibly broad way, where you have to think about the issues for creatures who can't don't have a voice, the ecosystems, they don't have a voice. As landscape architects, we have to be the voice of the ecosystem. We have to be the voice of the local insect population. They can't be consulted in a conventional way, yeah. but we can consult their needs and we can incorporate them, and we do, in terms of the sort of biodiversity that we introduce on top of, you know, the sort of design ideas and the, the ideas that come through the consultation. We can then bolt on those biodiversity additions to that and I think you have to really think really incredibly broadly when you're consulting absolutely um, to encompass all of those it's a very good point my last question to you all if we look at the urban landscape 50 years ago and compared it to now and also we see the rise of technology um, and also the different forms of communication so Jill you mentioned um, sound for example what do you think the future holds and what do you think, what will the future be? AI. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, yeah, we're involved in a lot of data centers relating yeah. to AI, which uh, is, is another big, big point that's, that's coming forward. You know, hu huge data centers in, in urban areas is going to become a feature of the landscape, um, the urban landscape, definitely. But but I think green travel is probably the the the, the, the biggest thing that's, I mean, I was, I was recently uh, over in Paris doing the Paris Marathon and was amazed, having not been there for 20 years, just how much Paris has moved on with green travel, EV scooters and uh, vehicles and, and the like. And so uh, making space, uh, making street space for uh, more um, personalized travel sc scooters in particular um, cycle hire schemes I mean I'm I'm not a fan of dockless cycle hire because dockless cycles um, clutter up the public realm or have done so so you know there's definitely more work to be done there on stewardship of discarded uh, um, bicycles in the public realm not not providing a hazard but uh, as a principle you know being able to mo move around uh, the town and the city on a bike or a scooter, uh, um, which is charged uh, lo locally, I think is a fantastic thing, but there needs to be space. We need to be rethinking of our streets. And um, uh, the UK uh, cities adapting them for uh, greenways uh, is going to take a long time and it's a long process, uh, but drivers move over. And what about driverless cars? I mean, what, what made me think about signs was, if we end up with driverless vehicles in predominating, how many signs are we going to need? You know, <laughs> hopefully it would reduce the clutter. But who knows? We've we'll, we'll come to that point, really. Well, we've had a really, a really engaging conversation and there's kind of key themes in, that have come up in the discussion in regards to inclusivity um, and design in terms of collaboration, stewardship, um, obviously co-design, but also understanding the local community. If you had to wrap up 
in three takeaways, each of you, that um, for anyone that is planning a scheme or being consulted or is in incorporating inclusivity in the design, what would be the three takeaways that each of you would give? So for me, it would be jigsaw. So a jigsaw puzzle, uh, when you're designing an urban estate, we're talking mostly about urban estates here, uh, we tend to think of uh, our site as part of the jigsaw puzzle in the town centre or city centre. And we try and encourage our client and our team to consider this as part of the whole. Um, and the work with the High Street Task Force that I've been doing is sort of feeds into that and with the design of view panels. Uh, often uh, with pu the public realm design, I'm called in or we're called in to buy councils, councils saying they, they call in two or three developers of adjoining sites and they say, right, you guys need to talk. And they get us in a room and we clash heads and try and work out how the collective whole is going to work rather than the individual whole so that the sum of parts can be greater than the whole. Um, then you can start to really work with the metrics of that place, that borough, the demographics of that borough, and you can benefit the local people. I mean, we've talked about building new communities, but actually it's about extending existing communities uh, um, I think it's arrogant to talk about building new communities, but 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 enhancing existing communities and and annexing uh, that. So, jigsaw, part of the jigsaw, uh, connected, permeable uh, spaces, uh, um, re really enhancing that original sense of place that might be lost and can be refound again. Three things. Um, I, I think one of them, uh, just a different word, is is listen. So listening to the stakeholders, listening to the people that live there and trying to then learn more about that place, um, doing research, uh, digging into the history of what that place is and how do we make this place meaningful. And then something I think you said, Joe, is putting yourself in, that, in their shoes and how you would navigate or how you think you would feel in this particular place. Those would be my three. Yes, I mean, I would echo all the previous, really. I'd say consult, consult, consult. Take a wide view and really think about how you can access, like you've done on the Ilford scheme with, with the children. And they're a really hard group to access, and there's other hard-to-access groups as well, so really take a broad brush. Definitely get the Mayor's Christmas list or the Mayor's Christmas list because that is so useful. And I would say review success. I think sometimes you were saying, I think, Glenn, you keep moving on from one scheme to another in your workload, you run to the next one, you're on to the next one. And actually, you don't ever get the time to draw breath and go back and review what worked, what went well, even better if, if you like. And it's about reviewing your success and looking at research as well, because that's another thing we don't have time to do. And it's sometimes quite difficult to access all the current research that's going on in the universities. You know, I think the Landscape Institute's been looking at this and how to... Uh, put practitioners in touch with current research thinking, and it's so important. Um, it should be really informing our work a lot more. So you learn from others. Well, thank you, Jill, Pierre and Glenn for your insight and guidance. And thank you all for listening to Talking Landscape. See you all in four weeks time. The current edition of Landscape is available for free online now. Find out more on the Landscape Institute website.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.